This is Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care, where we have insightful conversations about parenting for bio, foster, adoptive, or blended families to better understand the experiences we all face as families. Hi, everyone. This is Deborah Lindner. In our podcast episode today, we're going to hear from three foster parents who live in Utah who just happen to be single. Yep, you heard that right. If you're single, you can foster, you can adopt children in our state. And our conversation begins with our own foster adoptive consultant, Kobe Prettyman, who just happens to have started fostering as a single woman herself. We'd like to welcome everyone to our webinar tonight. We'll be talking about what it's like to be a single foster parent and all the ins and outs and how that's going to work. We have with us some special guests, Kirsten and Michael. We'll give them just a minute each to give us an introduction and tell us a little bit about how long they've been foster parents, what ages of kids they've fostered, and just a little bit about themselves. So Kirsten, let's go with you first. I have been a foster parent for about 11 years. I teach elementary school, so I usually foster elementary age children. I have fostered a, a toddler and a couple junior high kids just because of circumstances and things that popped up, but generally I, I just foster elementary age kids. That's very helpful that you're willing to consider a variety of ages, even if it's on a temporary basis from time to time. Michael, can you introduce you a little bit about yourself. I'm Michael. I've been fostering for about five years, and I primarily just foster kids age 12 and up. I do work full-time, so I can only foster kids that are allowed to be left at home for short periods of time without supervision. I'm limited in what I can do, but there are kids out there like that, and my situation could be a good fit for them. Teenagers is a great need that we have throughout the state. Even if your parameters are a certain age group, then that's great. We definitely need families that can do that. So tell us a little bit about what kinds of things you have to do with the kids that would maybe make it so you'd have to take some time off work. Usually if I have to take time off work, it's for going to court for the kids. For the most part, I've been able to schedule doctor visits and dentists and things like when we're out of school or after school hours. But generally when there's a court hearing. I try to go to as many as I can. I'll generally have to get a sub for that. How about you, Michael? You work full-time and maybe sometimes that the kids aren't in school. So how have you navigated that and what kinds of things have you needed to take time off for? Yeah, I would say the number one thing I end up having to take time off for is when I have a kid who's sick at school and they call me to go pick them up. I foster kids that sometimes tend to get in trouble a little more at school. So sometimes I would have to take time off works to go deal with something like that, but it's not usually too often. My work's pretty flexible, which is really nice. So usually if it's an urgent need, I can take off a couple hours to take care of things and come back. I also don't work full time out of the home. So majority of the time I can be home, which is really great. But there are times when I do have to go out and actually spend a day in the office. So say their work maybe isn't as flexible as either of your schedules, who can help with the kids? Who else can you rely on to help do some of those things? 
there'd have to be someone who's approved with the state to go pick up a kid. So in cases like that, I could have my parents go down. It's pretty rare that I have to do that. But if that's the case, then I can do that. There has been times when I've gotten a call and I couldn't leave. I just said, you're going to have to stay in the sick office at school for an hour or so because I can't come and pick you up immediately. But the schools are usually pretty understanding too. They know the situation. So I find as long as schools are aware of the situation, they're willing to work with you on those things. Do you have anything to add to that, Kirsten? I've been able to call in a family member or a friend if I've really needed somebody to go get the kids or to pick them up. As long as I let the school know ahead of time, they've been pretty good to let me do that. Generally, in the 11 years I've taught, I really haven't even really had any of those situations. So some pre-planning and having good scheduling helps you manage all of that, would you say? Yes. And I do think it helps that most of my kids have been at the same school that I've been at. So if they did get sick or something, they just walked down the hall. I have had a couple in other schools and then you do have to plan ahead a little bit better, but for the most part, it's been doable. How have you adjusted expectations of children and yourselves? Did you have expectations of children that you needed to make adjustments to those or think differently about what kids do? Yeah, definitely. I I definitely went in planning that it was going to be hard and challenging, but not really realizing all of the tools that I had in my pocket weren't going to work and that I had to learn new tools and have new expectations. And that's just a lot of learning over the years. There's actually a quote that I love, and it says, stop comparing yourself to other adults and families. They do not live your life, and they are not raising your children. Get comfortable with compromising and being different. Your child may talk, think, achieve, behave, and live differently than other children. Instead of measuring your family's worth by other people's standards, set expectations for your family based on your children's capabilities and your family's reality. I just live by that because the kids that do come in, they aren't always going to look and behave the way other children might. I also try to just cut their age in half. So if they're 12, I just expect that they're going to have some six-year-old behaviors. And if they're seven, I expect they're going to have some toddler behaviors from time to time because of their trauma. It sounds like you're very trauma-informed knowing that some of the things that they've experienced makes it so that some of the skills may not have developed the same as other children their same age. Thank you. Michael, do you have anything to add about expectations for yourself and the children? Yeah, I think expectation management is really important because quite often I get just teenagers. But even though I have like right now a 13-year-old boy, mentally he's about a nine-year-old. He'll still want to come up and like, yeah, can I snuggle with you? And I'm like, dude, you're like 13. You're growing a mustache. What do you want to snuggle? And so, so many of these kids grew up, I guess, in just situations where they never really got any of that growing up and they crave and you expect them to be at one point, but you have to realize that I can't have that expectation. I have to take them where they're at. We wondered a little bit about how families perceive you as being single and being a foster parent. Have you received any comments or concerns from the families of the children that you've taken about the fact that you're single or what's been the response that you've gotten from families? I've never really had that problem. Most of the kids that I've taken in, dad's kind of not in the picture. 
I also found that some of the kids were actually placed with me because I was single. They might have had some issues or fears surrounding men and things like that. I did have a, a mom once that was upset that her kids were in foster care and that they were coming home with me and she wanted them to be coming home with her. She was crying and she was really upset. I just gave her a hug and I said, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. I'm not here to steal your kids. I'm here to help you. And we just had a good relationship. So I really think that a lot of it is just they're scared and they're worried. They're naturally going to be upset. But if I think most of the time, if you can relieve their fears and let them know that you're also there to support them, then a lot of that will subside. I've never really had any big fears about my safety. Anything to add, Michael? I think for the most part, people are pretty supportive. I'm really religious, really actively involved in my church. Having that big support group and a lot of people who understand the situation, they know you well, really helps. There's going to be some people out there who think weird things like, why are you doing this? Do you have some ulterior motive or something? Number one, you can't worry about that. There's going to be people who think that no matter what you do, you do what you do because it helps these kids out. I just don't worry too much about it. But for the most part, I don't really have anyone say anything. I'd say that probably the biggest detractor is my own mom. He says, you shouldn't be doing this without being married, right? So I would say that's probably where I get most of the constructive feedback. Yeah, it's interesting that feedback would come from your own family. Sometimes our families think a certain way about how children should be raised. But what we find is that kids can be raised very healthy and happy in single parent homes. And like you said, Kirsten, a lot of the times kids are coming from those situations already. Have either of you adopted children or do you have any of your own children that aren't adopted? I didn't have any of my own children. I've never been married. I recently just adopted my son and my daughter in August. How has fostering impacted them? How do you feel like continuing to do that has impacted your children? I actually haven't fostered since I've adopted them. I have done respite and I do have a former foster daughter living with us right now. And at first it was hard, but there were also a lot of blessings that came with it. She's a little older. And so she actually was pretty helpful. And my kids really liked her. They really enjoy her. There were some jealousies that we had to work through because I think whenever somebody new comes into the home, you're going to have some of those threatened feelings of, Oh my gosh, do they love them more than me or they're getting more attention and, and that can trigger some trauma responses. And we've been doing visits with her mom, but my kids haven't been able to have that. Whenever you change the dynamics of your house or the routine, you're going to have challenges that come along with it, but you're going to have great things that come with it as well. Michael, you care for older children. So sometimes they don't end up being adopted as often by their own choice or different reasons. But have you adopted any children through foster care? I have adopted one and currently I'm fostering another one right now. I'd say the biggest challenge with the one I've adopted is the jealousy. Whenever I bring a new foster kid into the house, initially he's all excited and they're best friends for two weeks. <laughs> then he starts getting really jealous of the other one. I don't want you to pay attention to anyone else. So, so there's some of that. So it's a challenge, but I also think it's good, especially where I only have one I've adopted. It teaches them that you're not always going to get all the attention. You have to share that with other people. So I also think it's really good for them to, to have different foster kids that come into the house. It definitely is a balancing act, though. We recommend to a lot of foster families that they take time to have individual time with their own children. 
whether it be adopted or their biological children, so that they don't feel displaced by the children in foster care that are coming in. Because when you're single, there's only one of you to provide all of that attention and time and caring. So it probably takes some forethought and consideration to make sure that everybody still gets time that they need. Another question that came in is, can a single person foster an infant? Neither one of you really took infants, so I'll go ahead and answer that question because I fostered infants when I was doing foster care. I had a four-month-old and I had two really small infants and I was working and single at the time. So it takes some planning in that I had to arrange for childcare. The hard part about it is that you don't have nine months of a pregnancy to plan out your childcare or those sorts of things. So you can need to be proactive in figuring out who's going to watch the children for you and be available on pretty short notice to be able to take the child in. Lucky for me, my work was really flexible and I was able to bring the child with me for a time until I made arrangements for those sorts of things. So you can foster infants and we have families that do. Sometimes they do want to place infants in homes that have two parents where one parent is staying home. But I think if you have a good plan and a regular child care provider, then all of that goes into those placement decisions. Another thought on the infant thing too is that you might end up waiting longer if you're wanting to foster infants, but that would be the same if you were married or single, just because a lot of people do want the younger children or the infants. That is true. It all just depends on the age group and just all the parameters that you say will work best for your family. And then what is going to work for the children that they're looking for placements with, and they try to match those together. Are there any restrictions if you already have children, such as restrictions about who can share bedrooms? So you can't have like a girl and a boy share same room. So I only have one spare bedroom for fostering right now. So sometimes they call me up with a brother and a sister. It's like, I can't take them in because I only have the one bedroom. I guess there could always be the possibility of rearranging where I have my son and the other boy share a bedroom. I'd say that's the only one that I've really run into. There are certain parameters when you get your house license that bedrooms have to be a certain size and they need to have a closet and a window, different things like that. But besides the boy-girl thing, then no, there's really not. So general requirements for your home and then separate bedroom spaces, but not based on children are already being in your home. There's not additional restrictions. How do you introduce your foster children to other individuals, people you associate with? How do you do introductions? I will usually ask the kid how they want to be introduced. Most teenagers I find just want to be introduced by their name. So like, hi, this is Bob. He's staying with me right now. Some kids say, oh, you can call me your son. Others are like, just call me by my name. So it really depends on the kid. And I, I let them make that decision. Yeah, I do the same thing. And I tell my kids that you're welcome to call me whatever you want. I found that a lot of my foster kids at home will call me Kirsten. But then around friends and other people, they'll say my mom. But I just let them do what's comfortable for them. I think for kids, sometimes it's just easier than explaining to friends, especially if it's new people, you know, that this is 
Kirsten or Michael and they're my foster parents and the whole story into it, it's easier just to say, oh, my mom's here or my dad's here to pick me up rather than go into the big explanation to people. A question from our Facebook viewers is how do you juggle all the appointments and visits in the early days of a case? Because there's a lot of that when the kids first come into care. So how do you juggle all of that? I usually try to make appointments for after work hours if I can. If I can't, I will get a sub for those days. Lots of times when I was in between placements, I generally would take a break and I wouldn't take another placement until summertime. And then I could do a lot of those appointments and things during that time off. But most jobs will give family leave time if you're going to foster or adopt. My work has always been very understanding and helpful, and that has really helped a lot. Michael, you don't have summers off. Tell us how you've been able to handle that. One of the things, just as Kristen said, is trying to schedule appointments when you can do them outside of work hours. I find most things you can. So that's not too bad. The other thing is your ability to meet the needs that they have for those visits. I took in one kid once when we had all these family meetings that I had to get off work for. But ever since that one, I had had to work with my resource founder consultant who finds placements for me. And I had to tell him that I can't take in a kid that needs this many visits in the middle of my work days because I can't take that much time off work. I think that open communication with the person who's responsible for helping to line you up with the right match is super important. So now I only take kids in who don't have to have visits during work days. Or if they do, the caseworker is aware of that and they will come and pick them up and take them to that. So I go into it with these expectations up front, knowing exactly what needs I can meet, what needs I can't meet. And then the caseworkers, they know that. So we're able to get things worked out. Good communication when you go into it, knowing what you can handle and the people, your resource family consultant who works with the caseworkers to find you a good match making sure that they understand what your limitations are so they can match you up with a good placement. Yeah, those are wonderful suggestions. Is If everybody knows where everybody stands with things, then they can make it work. And then when it doesn't work, I like that you said that you asked the caseworker if they could fill in and transport to the visits. And there's times that can maybe work and maybe times that that can't, but there's oftentimes ways that we can work around some of those things. Another question is how do you handle if you have to be to work before school starts or when they get off, do you use daycare, neighbors? Can your teenagers, Michael, walk themselves to and from school? Some of those kinds of things with scheduling. I live close enough to the schools. They can walk. They usually will ride their scooters to school or ride their bike. So that is a possibility. Most days I can drive them to school, but they know there's some days where, oh, I have to be to work, I have an early morning meeting and I can't be late for it. So today you're going to have to walk to school and they'll get themselves to school. There's also neighbors that can sometimes drive them there or drive them home. There's a lot of flexibility there. One of my kids was in the sixth grade when I got him, and the elementary school that I go to does have an after-school and a before-school program. So that was also really helpful in being able to drop them off a little bit early. Not all schools have that, but if they do, that can be really beneficial. I would say that most of the time, the fact that the children are in care bumps them up on some of those waiting lists for those kinds of programs if they're available. So. Yes. In fact, 
there was no room in the before and after school program, but because they were in foster care, the caseworker was able to call the school and they got him right in. So what if you yourself is sick? What do you do in those kinds of situations? iPads, <laughs> TV. When I get sick, I have had friends that will jump in and help out or family members that will come and help out. But I think there are days when it's a down day and you just have to lower your expectations of yourself. You just do what you can do. And if you need to order out or whatever, you do that. So have you taken the children um, on vacation? If I can, I do. There are, like, if you're going out of state, you do have to get permission from, like, the family and the judge. If it's within state, it's a bit easier. You just have to let the caseworker know. But I've taken my kids on vacations with me. I, I would say that if you're going to take a child on a vacation to... Remember, they, they do have trauma and a lot of those traumas can be triggered. I, I, mean, I took my first two foster boys to Disneyland and it was really tough. I'm glad I did it, but I just think you need to be prepared for that even though it's like this great magical moment, there's going to be meltdowns and might not be as magical as you had planned it to be. <laughs> I think preparation for things like that is huge. Like really preparing the kids. This is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there. The more you can front load a vacation. And I also think that not expecting too much out of them. Sometimes we're having so much fun. We're going to stay at Disneyland all day long, but really that's a long day for adults, yeah. let alone for younger children. And so yeah. keeping those realistic expectations when you plan for things like that. And they um, might not be grateful and they might be grateful, but they might not express it in the way that, you know, that you would hope. Expecting. Yeah. So you mentioned traveling out of state with vacation. Someone asked about traveling out of state for a conference or work-related things. Do you take the children with you? And can you take the children with you? So I would say you do pretty much what any single parent would do, right? If you're getting into this as a single parent, you realize I'm a single parent and yeah, I'm going to have to figure out things and have plans to watch them. You do get respite care and foster care. So for like every one month you do foster care, you get one respite day, like vacation day for a foster parent. And so you can build that time up. And some people will use that time to have someone watch their kid, like another foster parent for three or four days while they go out of town. Some parents just need some time off for themselves. And so they'll use that respite care to have someone watch their kids while they just go and, and recuperate. You don't, like I said, it's only a day per month, so you don't get a lot of it, but you do get some time you can use for that. Other than that, you've got to have some kind of a backup plan, just like any single parent. And realize that if you're going to go in this without that support as a single parent, it's going to be super tough. Yeah, I think you made a great point, though, Michael, that you really need to have a support system around you, people that you can rely on when things come up at work, when you have emergencies, that sort of thing is really important. Another question that came in is, have you had a placement with behavioral or health issues that were too much for you? And what did you do? You get this child and maybe didn't realize all that the needs they might have and realized it was too much. Can either of you talk about if that's happened and how did you handle that? I felt like that happened. My first placement was pretty challenging and I felt like I was in over my head and a lot of people told me I was, but I don't know. I just forged through it. And, and then I took some time off after, and I just really tried to train myself as much as I could in trauma and working with kids with trauma so that I would be better prepared for 
the next situation. That really helped me a lot. I also think that nobody wants to take a placement and then not have it work out, but there are times where it might not. And if that's the case, I just think we need to be gentle with each other and, and with ourselves and realize that it doesn't mean that you're a failure. It does take a lot of grit. I do think that you need to go in realizing that you are going to get in over your head and it's going to be hard and it's going to be challenging. And there's going to be days that you feel like you're failing and what have I done? <laughs> but there's also so many wonderful days that come out of it too and wonderful moments. Michael, have you had placements that you felt were more than you could handle? Yeah, I had one placement that just didn't work out. You do everything you can do. And the last thing you want to do is to say, this just isn't working out. Don't wait till it gets to the point that like I give up. I realized that it wasn't working out. So I contacted the caseworker and I was able to keep them for about another month until they found a, a different placement that was better for them. Something that I've learned, especially dealing with teens, is I always talk with the teens and visit with them before I agreed to take them in. And I always have them agree to come to my house as well. There's certain rules I have in my house that everyone has to follow. I go over those with them up front. Can you live with this? Because I, I find having that good communication up front, especially with older kids, makes it so that they later don't say, oh, I don't like this. You agree to this. You knew that this was the expectations coming into this. With younger kids, that doesn't happen as much, I know. But I think with teenagers, that's super important. I love the idea that you said you have them agree to come to your house as well. I think that I haven't heard that from a lot of foster parents, but I think that gives the children a voice and feel like they have some control over their life. Because so many times children that come into care don't feel like they have a say in what's going on. They're taken from their family. They're being placed with someone that they don't know and feel very powerless. So you're giving some of that power back to them. I think that is wonderful. How long do you usually have a placement for? How long do children generally stay with you? I just think it all depends. I've had placements that have lasted a year to a year and a half. And then I've had some that were only a few months long. And I've had placements where they said, mom's doing really great. It should only be six months max. And then it turned out to be a year and a half. Or where you expect it to be longer and then it ends up being really short. So it really just depends on the situation. You just can't really ever 100% know how long it's going to be for. What are some of the factors that has made it shorter? They try to put them with family members. And so a couple months later, then, then they make that transition to the family member's home. When you're single, how do you make sure that your needs are met? Respite, babysitter. I had a placement that was lasting a lot longer and I ended up taking in their siblings. So I had four kids. I was a little overwhelmed and I just ended up hiring a sitter that came one night every week. And I just knew that I was going to have that night every week to myself. And if I didn't have anywhere to go, I'd just go to my dad's house and grade papers, or I'd go somewhere to just have that quiet time. Over COVID, I ended up hiring a cleaning lady that came once a week, just because just walking into a clean house was so energizing and refreshing, especially when I didn't have to do it all. So just little things, I found just little things that have worked over the years that have really helped me. Also early bedtime, just so I know that I have two to three hours in the evening just to myself. That also is very helpful for me. 
do you have something to add to that, Michael, that you've found works for you? No, I'll second the bedtimes. Even for teenagers, they may not think it's cool to be in bed by 10 o'clock, but you know what? That gives you that hour of time that you need for yourself. To watch what you want on TV instead of YouTube or SpongeBob or whatever they're watching. So someone had a question in follow-up to your comment about sitters, Kirsten. Can that be just anyone? Does it have to have special approval? Who can watch the children? For me, most of my kids have been a little bit more challenging. And so I've had to really find sitters that can handle it, that are a little bit older. If it's just a babysitter that's like a couple hours a week, you really can get anybody that you trust and you think can handle it. But if it's going to be like daycare or somebody that comes into your house to provide daycare for a extended period of time and on a regular basis, they do have to get background checked. And if it's overnight, then they have to be licensed. Again, it's one of those things that takes some thought up front and arranging to get background check approvals. They can be in any licensed child care facility or daycare provider that is licensed to if they're not school aged and you're working during school hours or summer breaks or different things like that. So I think you kind of addressed this, but if it's less than five hours, can it be someone that you trust? And I think the answer is if it's going to be on a consistent basis, then they probably should have a background check. If it's five hours occasionally, you're going to run here, you have to do something. But if it's going to be five hours per week, every week, then the preference is, is that person would be background check. What is your interaction with the families of the children? Do you ever feel threatened by families or what's your interaction with the parents like? I've really tried hard to become friends with the families to let them know that I'm there for them as well. You need to be careful like that there's some boundaries in place that they're not taking advantage and that you're not enabling them. But I've tried really hard to get to know them. And most of the families that I've worked with have been great. I've mostly worked with moms and it's been really good situations. There was one situation where I did start to feel like I couldn't supervise visits because I didn't feel that it was a safe situation for the kids or for myself. So then I did tell the caseworker to supervise that. And I do think that they're pulling away from having foster parents supervise, at least in our area. But I found that I've had a lot of wonderful experiences doing visits. Every family is definitely different in every situation. Do you have something to add to that, Michael, in your interactions with families of the children? Yeah, I haven't really had a whole lot. I've never done unsupervised visits, so I've never really had any issues myself. Oftentimes it will be the caseworker. Occasionally foster families do help supervise visits, even if you don't do that part of it, you can still talk to the parents about how the children are doing. And like you referenced, Christian, form a relationship with those families and those parents. That really helps the children in a variety of ways. Can you talk a little bit about the emotional roller coaster you go through as a foster parent? Have you had your heart set on adopting a child and that didn't work out? Talk a little bit about the emotions of it all. Yeah, it's definitely an emotional roller coaster. And I went into foster care with the intention to just foster, but it got to where they had been with me a year and a half and the goal changed to adoption instead of reunification. So I was planning to adopt them. 
and then circumstances changed and they went back at the last minute. It was very emotional. Sometimes I take time off in between placements. I think the biggest emotional roller coaster for me and for my kids is as you go to court, you think, okay, mom's going to do it. And you prepare yourself mentally for mom getting the kids back. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, it doesn't look like mom's going to be able to do it. So then you're trying to prepare yourself mentally to adopt these kids and these kids are going to be yours. And then it's, oh, actually we're going to give her more time. We're going to give her three more months. And then you're like, okay, I got to pull in my heartstrings a little. And so you do go through this. For me, it has been challenging at times. The nice thing is that at least for when you have older kids, like they're in therapy and you can go to therapy as well. (laughs) And it really helps. I wouldn't go into it expecting not to have a lot of emotions. I had someone say something I had never thought of. We all expect like our parents to die, but that doesn't mean we're not sad when it happens. So even though you expect them to go home or you expect them to stay and they don't or whatever the situation might be, it still can be difficult and challenging. And so I really like that you said you take some time for yourself, maybe take a little break before taking the next placement and regroup. Michael, how have you handled some of that? Are there certain things you've done or what are some of your thoughts or feelings? Yeah. Again, this is all managing expectations. Sometimes things happen. Sometimes you're sad with the way things turn out, no doubt about it. I I find a lot, especially where I do mostly teenagers, a lot of them already know what they want. Some of them want to go back to parents, some don't. I mean, I had one that ran away and then I found out about six months later that he was back with his dad. With the older teens, there's a lot of decisions they make on their own and you don't run a prison. You're not locking them up. If they decide to run away and do something, you can't really stop that. You just try to set that good example while you have them. Hopefully they remember that as they go in throughout their lives. But things don't always turn out how you expect. And I would say that's the the secret to happiness in foster care is no expectations, right? <laughs> you, you don't expect anything, then you're not disappointed with whatever happens. We're getting close to time. So we're going to answer one last question and then... I just want to remind everybody that's joining in that they can check out utahfostercare.org and submit information if they want someone to reach out to them to have a more individualized conversation. So one other question, then we'll just close with some final thoughts from each of you. Are there income requirements to be a single foster parent? Is there a certain income level you have to meet? You have to be self-sufficient. So there's not like a specific level whatever they determine when they license you that you are self-sufficient in other words you can't depend on any of the money that you get from caring for kids so as long as you can meet the needs of your own family then there's no requirement of what you make any final thoughts you have one thing i would say is sometimes it's really hard some days are really stressful some days you're like why did i decide to do this but overall it's something that, that i just really absolutely love hoping that Someday that you make a difference in someone's life, that maybe they turn out to be a better person for that. But I really do. I love it. So if that's something you think you'd love doing, I think this is a great thing to do. I agree. As I went through all the classes to become a foster parent, I learned all these things. One thing I wish I would have heard is that, you know what, you're not going to do it perfectly and, and that's okay. You don't have to be a perfect person to do this. That's been a great lesson for me to learn. I've grown so much through doing foster care. 
And I wish I could go back and do my first kids over again, knowing the things that I know and having the experiences that I've had, but you do the best you can in each situation. And you just have to be gentle with yourselves as you go along. But I would definitely encourage anybody that was really thinking about it to start making those preparations. Foster care is definitely a journey and there's amazing trainings that Utah Foster Care puts on to help foster parents continue to learn and grow and gain new skills. There's cluster meetings and things that are intended for foster parents to get together and talk through some of those issues. So like you say, Kirsten, you just continue to improve as you go and and everybody's going to make mistakes and that includes the parents too. And so we want to provide them opportunities for learning and growth and to help understand the children that are coming in and be able to provide the best care for them. I love what you say about being gentle with yourselves. And if we can translate that over to the children and understand sometimes they're coming from difficult situations and and they need somebody to be gentle with them too, then that is really great. So thank you everyone for joining us and have a good night. This has been Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, go to utahfostercare.org. We'll see you next time.